in the book of Esther were presented with a picture of the kingdom of the world and the world's kind of king. Esther, one of God's people, is there. And the question is, will she be absorbed by it, assimilated into it? Or will she choose to identify herself with God and his people, which may cost her very life? Esther has some things to show us because we too, though we are citizens of heaven, find ourselves living in the kingdom of the world. And the question is, will we be absorbed by it, assimilated into it? Or will we find our identity in our belonging to Christ and in our fellowship with his people? I spent a lot of years as a publicist representing various Christian authors and organizations to the media. And I suppose it was somewhat obvious that I was in that role because I was a Christian myself. But I think there was also a sense in which I maintained a professional distance from whatever message it was that my client was communicating as I worked with various media people, many of whom were not believers. But then came the day when I was the author and I was the one sitting in a restaurant being interviewed by a writer about what I believed. And it was different. It felt like I was crossing over a threshold, going public with my faith in Christ in a new and dramatic way. And honestly, I wasn't sure I wanted to. I knew that it might cost me. And when the article with the interview came out, Here's what it said in part. She wrote, Guthrie says, no heaven without Jesus. Anyone who doesn't stand on a relationship with God through his son, regardless of the religious or spiritual label, is shut out. It's a tough call in a society where most Americans, polls say, see many paths to God. And then she quotes me saying, I know that sounds exclusive and narrow and intolerant and perhaps even simple-minded to some. But it's the truth. And if you have missed reckoning with Jesus, you've missed the very purpose for which you were created. Well, after the article appeared, my husband David came across a response to the article online. It described me as a decent person, but that my theology was poor and damaging. And the writer said, at the heart of the tragic incomprehension among Christians is the assertion that the only hope for all of us is in Jesus. So while it felt like a significant step to go public with my allegiance to Christ in this way, I suppose that if the worst persecution I've ever experienced is being described as decent, then my big brave stand really hasn't cost me anything. Today, as we bring our study of the historical books to a close, we're looking at the story of Esther, a woman whose identification with the people of God could have cost her everything. She had to decide if she was going to be defined by her citizenship in the kingdom of the world that promised her a life of comfort or if she was going to be defined by her citizenship in the kingdom of God, which would threaten her very existence. She faced a choice 
that really all of us face. The day will come when we will have to decide what is going to define us. Are we going to be defined by the things of this world, what we can accomplish, how good we can look, the comfort we can enjoy, the status we can attain? Or will we be defined by our belonging to the people of God as one whose life isn't really about us at all, but about the one to whom we've been united by faith? Now, the book of Esther begins with a party, and this is not just any party. This is a six-month-long party thrown by King Ahasuerus for all the warlords and governors from throughout his kingdom, which stretched from India to Ethiopia. And when we read in Esther chapter 1 about the party, we're meant to be impressed by the decor, the furniture, the mosaic tiles, the wine, and even the wine goblets. But I think perhaps we're meant to be somewhat amused by the king himself. Look in Esther chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So here is the most powerful man in the world and he can't get his queen to come in and prove to his dinner companions that he is married to the most beautiful woman in the world. Now, of course, they've been drinking for a while now, probably trading stories and one-upping each other, and perhaps the stories are getting more and more bawdy. Perhaps when he asks her to come in with her royal crown, he's really asking Vashti to come wearing only her royal crown. Whatever the reason for it, her refusal creates an embarrassing dilemma for the king. And it's the first of many times throughout the book of Esther that the king asks his advisors what to do. He is supposedly the one with all the power, but evidently it is his advisors who pull the strings. And they're afraid that all the women in the kingdom will hear about Vashti's refusal of her husband's request and be empowered to refuse the requests of their own husbands. So what is their brilliant advice? published throughout the kingdom that Vashti is banished and that every man should be master in his own house. Now, I no longer have a media relations business, but I'm thinking that if the king had wanted to save face, maybe it wasn't the best idea to make sure that the news about what Vashti had done was published in every corner of the kingdom. But they didn't ask me. So Vashti is out and there is an opening in the kingdom for the position of queen. And once again, the king's advisors have a great idea about how to fill the position. Look in chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, 
and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. This is kind of like a casting call for the Bachelor, Susa edition. Beautiful young women are going to live together in the same house at the palace complex and compete to be chosen by the king after an overnight date. And it's at this point we are introduced to Hadassah, which is her Jewish name, or Esther, which is her Persian name. Perhaps we're given both names because the writer is hinting to us that the day is going to come when she's going to have to choose which of these two identities will define her. Esther is an exile living in the kingdom of Persia, about 50 years after King Cyrus had conquered the Babylonians. So what takes place in the book of Esther actually falls within the same time period we were in last week, after the time when Zerubbabel took back the first group of exiles to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, which we read about in Ezra, and before the time when Nehemiah led the third wave of exiles to return to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And this fact alone tells us something about Esther and her cousin Mordecai. It's been 50 years since the Jews living throughout the provinces ruled by the Persian king have been free to return to Judah. And evidently, Mordecai and Esther don't want to. Evidently, they just don't have the desire or the drive to live in the land where Yahweh has promised to dwell with his people. And instead, they're content to continue to call this kingdom home where the watchword of the day is assimilation, a place where everyone is invited to bring his or her own God to the table, an environment in which the suggestion that there is only one true God is soundly rejected. And evidently, they have settled into a comfortable coexistence. Now, evidently, Esther was quite beautiful, which did not escape the eyes of the king's officers. And so she was one of the women taken to the palace to begin beauty treatments to make her even more beautiful for the king. And here in chapter 2, verse 15, we read that there at the palace, she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And it's interesting that the writer says she was winning favor, which is different from the account of Daniel who was in a similar position as a Jew in the palace in Babylon a hundred years earlier. The book of Daniel says that God gave Daniel favor. So evidently, Esther is working for it. In his commentary on Esther, Ian Duguid writes that resistance was not high on her program at this point, that on the contrary, she seemed content, even eager to be assimilated. We read in Esther 2, beginning in verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. The writer of the book of Esther doesn't tell us what Mordecai's reasons were for counseling Esther to hide that she was a Jew. Most likely he knew that it would not work for her, but could likely work against her. Perhaps he's trying to protect her, or maybe he's just trying to give her more chance for advancement. Esther does seem intent on making an impression at the palace. 
after a year of filling out her curves by eating the king's food and getting every treatment offered at the palace beauty salon, she had her one-night tryout with the king. Now, unlike the modern version of The Bachelor, if you weren't chosen by this bachelor, you couldn't leave and find another husband. Instead, you were moved into the concubine part of the house. You would never have a husband or a family. You would live out your days there, perhaps being called into the king's bedchambers at the king's whim, even after he had married someone else. Look in Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, if Esther was so pleasing to the king, isn't it possible that she wasn't real resistant to him? In fact, Maybe she spent some time reading How to Please Your Man kind of articles in the Persian version of Cosmopolitan magazine over those 12 months of preparation. The scripture doesn't tell us how she felt about this, if she saw it as a great horror or a great opportunity. But we do know that this matter of the king choosing Esther was not merely a coincidence, but that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and that he turns it wherever he will. God is at work here in a way that no one can see with the human eye or understanding. You see, God's plan proceeds in the world around us. It goes forward, not in spite of our desires and inclinations, whether sinful or righteous, but precisely through shaping us to be the people we are. God's sovereignty operates in such a way that our freedom and responsibility to act aren't compromised, and yet the end result is still exactly what God has purposed from the beginning. God achieves his perfect goals, not just through our best intentions or our most self-sacrificing acts, but even through our greatest sins and compromises. It may seem on the surface that King Ahasuerus has all of the power in this interplay. But really, there is a hidden king in this story. And he is the one with unlimited power. Power that he intends to use for the good of his people, including this compromised queen. In chapter 3 of Esther, we get to the heart of the story as we are introduced to Haman. Look in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Evidently, Mordecai doesn't have a problem bowing down to the pagan king, Ahasuerus. But he does refuse to bow down to Haman. Now, why is that? Well, while it isn't spelled out for us here in the passage, if we had lived in the day when this was written, it likely would have been clear to us when we read that Haman was an Agagite. Haman was a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite. 
The Amalekites were the first people group that attacked the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And for this, God cursed them and condemned them to extinction. And then later in Israel's history, when Saul was crowned king, he and his armies were sent to carry out this sentence. But instead of devoting man and beast to destruction as instructed, remember that Saul spared the best of the animals and King Agag himself? Saul left a root to regrow, which emerges right here in the book of Esther as a new threat against God's people. It was because of his sparing King Agag that Saul had been rejected as king. Now, back in chapter 2, we were told that Mordecai was the son of Jer, son of Shemai, son of Kish. Remember that Saul was also called a son of Kish. And when we put this together, the source of the animosity becomes clear. Mordecai, a relative of King Saul, was not about to bow down to Haman, a relative of King Agag. Look in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So evidently, just punishing Mordecai would not be enough to satisfy Haman's wounded sense of vanity. All of Mordecai's people must die. Haman wants all of the Jews living throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, which we must understand is all of the Jews living in the world to be put to death. Now, really, this was just the latest manifestation of Satan's ongoing warfare against the people of God that began in the Garden of Eden, the seed of the ancient serpent, seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. Because if all the Jews are killed, there will be no descendant of Abraham who will bring blessing to the world, no son of David to sit on David's throne. A threat to the continuation of the Jewish race was a threat to the coming of Messiah. And we begin to realize that while we may have always thought that this story is about Esther's courage to stand up for her people, really, it's about God's providential care to save those from whom the promised one will come. Haman went to King Ahasuerus, who thoughtlessly signed a decree proposed by Haman instructing people in every province to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews in one day. Now, of course, he didn't know that his beautiful queen was a Jew. And it's at this point in the story that we discover just how isolated Esther has become from the rest of the covenant community. Every Jew from India to Ethiopia, we read, is fasting and weeping and lamenting Haman's murderous edict. And evidently, Esther is oblivious to it. It would seem that Esther has not watched the news or checked her Facebook page, or maybe she just hasn't accepted friend requests from any of her old Jewish friends. 
because she just doesn't even seem to know what's going on in their lives, that their lives are being threatened. Evidently, she has done such a good job of concealing her Jewish identity that no one thought to inform her of the slaughter about to take place. When word came to Esther that her cousin Mordecai was wearing sackcloth instead of clothes at the city gate, she sent some clothes for him to put on, but he refused to put them on. Mordecai told Esther's emissary about the edict and gave him a written copy of it that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. God's people needed a mediator. Someone who was willing and able to go and plead their case where they could not go into the presence of the king. Now initially, Esther's not interested, and she sends her servant back to Mordecai with her response. We read it in chapter 4, verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. If Esther goes to see the king and he doesn't extend to her his golden scepter, she will be put to death. And it's been 30 days since she's been summoned to his bedroom to spend the night. And do we really think he's been sleeping alone with that huge house of concubines next door? It's clearly going to cost Esther something to make her Jewish identity known in the palace. In fact, it may cost her everything. Esther is in real danger. She's in danger of being so assimilated into the kingdom that she no longer has any identification with the people of God. She is in danger of having so capitulated to the ways of the world that she would have no compassion for the people of God. And Mordecai is not backing down. He sends a response that may even contain a veiled threat. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We expect Mordecai to say, if you keep silent, then your people will perish. But he doesn't. He says that if she stays silent, God will deliver them in some other way. Mordecai remembers the promise made to Abraham that through his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He remembers God's promise to David that one of his descendants will sit on the throne to rule forever, and he believes it. If all the Jews in the kingdom are killed, it would be the end of God's people, the end of God's promise, and that simply can't be. Mordecai sees that Esther's being chosen as queen was not a simple twist of fate or the result of chance. He is sure that there is a greater purpose at work here. Perhaps 
like Joseph, who was raised up in the palace of the Pharaoh to be in place to save his people, Esther has been raised up to the palace of Hasuerus to save her people. But of course, Esther has had no dream assuring her of future glory like Joseph had. She has heard no voice from heaven telling her what to do or assuring her of miraculous intervention. But she has weighed the cost and decided to act. We read her decision in chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther doesn't see her own death as one possible outcome of her action. She sees it as the most likely outcome. Her statement, if I perish, I perish, is more resignation to the inevitability of death than hope for some unexpected reprieve. She put on her best dress and stood outside the king's throne room, and when he saw her, he invited her in. Instead of cutting to the chase and pleading for the lives of her people, Esther invited the king and Haman there to a private banquet. And the next night at the banquet, once again, she didn't broach the topic of the edict to kill the Jews, but invited the king and Haman to come back again the next night. But that night, in between the two banquets, the king couldn't sleep. In an attempt to lull himself to sleep, the king asked for what may have been the most boring reading material available, a history book. Or maybe he was looking for the most interesting reading material available to a self-obsessed king, a book all about himself and his accomplishments. Whichever it was, God was at work through ordinary insomnia and choice of reading material as the king discovered in his reading that he had never publicly rewarded someone who had notified him of a plot against his life. Mordecai. You know, if you want people to be willing to come forward and inform you about possible threats on your life, it's a good idea to handsomely reward those who do. But on the same night, Haman could hardly sleep either. On his way home, feeling so good about himself as the only person included in the king and queen's banquet. He walked by that Jew, Mordecai, who refused to bow. So Haman went to sleep making mental plans for the gallows he will have built on which he will hang Mordecai. And the next day, when Haman got to the king's court, the king's waiting to ask him a question. The king asks him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And of course, Haman is quite sure that he must be the man the king wants to honor. So he thinks through exactly how he would like to be honored. And he lays it out for the king. Look in chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. 
and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on a horse throughout the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. But of course, the king has in mind honoring Mordecai, the very person that Haman has hoped to hang on the gallows he's having built. The feast of pleasurable thoughts he enjoyed the night before about hanging Mordecai has gone sour in his stomach. Imagine the frustration and humiliation he must have felt as he walked through the streets of Susa, fulfilling the king's instructions to give Mordecai the elaborate honor that he had hoped would be heaped upon him. But at least he had another banquet with the queen that night to look forward to. Now the queen, meanwhile, has had a secret that she has kept ever since she was taken into the royal harem, her belonging to the people of God. But it was time now to make her true identity known. And that night at the second banquet with the king and Haman, here's what she said. Look in Esther 7, verses 3 and 4. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Esther has now effectively added her name to the list of those to be slaughtered on the appointed day. She has left compromise and hiding behind to identify herself with God's people and their plight. Look back in chapter 7 in verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. We can almost see and hear the drama in silent film, black and white. And so Haman was hanged on the gallows. He prepared for Mordecai. And it would seem that the story is over as Esther has not perished and the evil Haman is dead. The seed of the woman, Esther has risen to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, Haman. But there does remain that pesky detail of an edict that has gone out throughout all the provinces, setting a day for all of the Jews to be slaughtered. An edict that cannot be revoked. Look in chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther has come all of the way out of the closet 
She's no longer cunningly coy. She is at the king's feet, weeping and pleading for the lives of the people of God. And the king responds by telling her that she and Mordecai can issue a counteracting edict, however they see fit. So they sent out a decree saying that the king allowed the Jews in every province to defend their lives and to kill anyone who attacked them. And this is exactly what happened. Look now in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Those who set themselves against the people of God, hoping to dominate and destroy them, were themselves destroyed. And so ends a great story of deliverance of the people of God. But really, it is just one chapter in a much larger story. An ongoing battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. If you remember, we started our study of the historical books of the Old Testament talking about the kingdom of God and what it is like when his kingdom comes. And the book of Esther actually helps to fill out that picture more completely as the kingdom of Ahasuerus provides us with a stark contrast to the kingdom of God under King Jesus. When the kingdom of God comes in our lives, we come under a wise king, one who doesn't need the input of his underlords to know what to do. And even now, our king is working in hidden, invisible ways, bringing about his sovereign plans for history. But one day, the whole world will see him and bow before him. The feast we are served in his kingdom is greater than that of King Ahasuerus. It's the bread of his broken body and the cup of the covenant in his blood, which nourishes our very souls. But really, this feast is just an appetizer, wetting our appetite for the great banquet to come, the wedding supper of the Lamb, when we will enjoy the presence of our King. Our king is not a self-absorbed bachelor who would banish his bride from his kingdom on a drunken whim. He does not ignore his bride and is not unfaithful to his bride. Our bridegroom loves his bride purely and permanently. Even now, he is making us beautiful, not through pampering, but through pruning not through soaking in baths of oils and spices, but by soaking in the word of God. Not by living in secluded luxury, but by entering into the suffering of the world around us. Our king, the beautiful one, was marred and made as one from whom men hide their faces in order that we might become beautiful. In this greater kingdom, we have a better mediator than Esther. Our mediator was well aware of our need and unconcerned with preserving his own life. 
he didn't have to be cajoled to take up our cause, but instead covenanted with the Father and the Spirit in eternity past to intercede for us. And not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. He was willing to perish so that we will not perish, but have eternal life. Because the fierce rod of judgment fell upon Christ, God can extend the golden scepter of his favor toward us. We need have no fear to approach the throne. We can come knowing that we will be welcomed and not condemned, confident that we will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We were born into a kingdom under an irrevocable decree that threatens our very lives, which is this. For the wages of sin is death. But our king has issued another decree that will be our salvation, which is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The pull of the pleasures of the kingdom of this world is strong. This kingdom wants to assimilate us so that we look like everyone else and think like everyone else and value what everyone else values. But the kingdom of God calls us away from that. It calls us to identify ourselves with the people of God. It may mean being hated and marginalized in this world, but it holds out great reward a great reversal of fortunes when his kingdom comes. Jesus told his disciples, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to mediate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. You see, even if you are put to death because of your identification with the people of God and your allegiance to the great king, you will not ultimately perish. Instead, you can be sure that by losing your life in service to your king, you will have preserved your life. 